Hello and welcome to the Miko Pellet Podcast. This podcast aims to shine a light on underreported Palestinian experiences through different conversations with the brave human rights defenders living in Palestine, Israel, and into the diaspora. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, if we can please ask you to give uh, the Miko Pellet podcast a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, um, it really helps other people find the show. So on this episode, uh, Miko speaks with uh, Awad Abdel Fattah, a longtime community organizer that Miko met during his, you know, once upon a time regular trips to Palestine, uh, where he would meet with activists and organizers uh, interested in fighting for Palestinian liberation. So Awad is a figure in Palestinian activism who, who truly deserves more attention and interest. He is a uh, Palestinian political writer. Uh, he's the former general secretary of the Belad party, and he is also a coordinator of the Haifa-based One Democratic State campaign, which was established in late 2017. He also has a regular column at Middle East Eye, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and link that in the description, and, and I definitely urge all of you to, to follow his work there. So in this conversation, Miko spoke with Awad about, you know, the unique plight of 1948 Palestinians, especially in the face of the decades-old settler colonial project that is Israel. Awad really goes into a lot of fascinating detail about how 1948 Palestinians have organized themselves, going all the way back from uh, the Nakba into 1967 and even, you know, during and beyond Oslo, touching on a lot of the various political factions and parties that were emerging at the time as the situation on the ground drastically changed for Palestinians. This discussion really gives us a, a kind of rare view into Palestine liberation activism from a very historical context leading all the way up to today as calls for a single democratic state become increasingly accepted among organizers in Palestinian society. All channeled, of course, through a, a lens of those Palestinians who remained in 1948 Palestine and became de facto citizens of Israel. So without further ado, here is the conversation between Miko Pellet and Awad Abdel Fattah. Okay, well, hello, everyone. Um, it's nice to be here again to speak with everyone. Um, I'm really pleased uh, to have today as a guest Awad Abdel Fattah, who's been uh, a major figure in um, the Palestinian struggle within 1948. In other words, lives within 1948. Uh, Awad, you and I met a couple of times at your home in, uh, in the beautiful town of. Um, of Kaukab al-Hijla. Al-Hijla. Al-Hijla, yes, in the, in the beautiful hills on the way to Nasra. Gorgeous place. And uh, then we met in Abi Saleh last time with a bunch of other people. And, um, you know, one of the things that even the most uh, well-informed Palestine solidarity activists both in Palestine and in uh, around the world are not aware of is the work that's been done by Palestinians in 1948 Palestine who have Israeli citizenship, the community of Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. Um, and you've been a major part in this, uh, in this movement, in the struggle uh, for many, many decades or many, many years. 
And so I wanted to maybe start, if you could talk a little bit about the Palestinian movement within 1948, uh, Abna al-Balad, uh, and then later on the creation of, of Balad as a movement, and anything else really that you, that you feel is important and relevant uh, that's been done that was part of the struggle of Palestinians who, who've been living within 1948. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for hosting me and uh, uh, to begin with, in fact, uh, the Palestinian inside the Green Line, uh, yeah, they are part of the Palestinian people. Uh, and uh, until maybe 20 years ago or a little bit more, most uh, uh, even activists, I mean, who are sympathetic with the Palestinian cause really had ignored uh, the struggle of the Palestinians inside the Green Line. And uh, of course, uh, there were efforts uh, that were made by the Palestinians themselves and the leadership of their political movements to shed light on the plight of those Palestinians who in fact, uh, are the survivors of the ethnic cleansing of 1948. And uh, we have, in the last three decades, uh, uh, made uh, a lot of efforts outside to enlighten those who are interested in the Arab-Israel struggle and the Palestinian cause uh, about the plight uh, and the system of or the plight of those Palestinians and the tight system of control that was employed against them since 1948 until 1966. And uh, I think that uh, mainly uh, prior to the outbreak of the Second Intifada, uh, yeah, most of the international and the regional uh, players in the Middle East conflict uh, had overlooked or even or at least underestimated the status or the role of the Palestinians inside Israel. Uh, and uh, when Palestinians took to the streets in solidarity with their brothers in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, I mean during the Second Intifada, uh, and they uh, took to the streets and in, in tens of thousands uh, and clashed with the Israeli forces, which in fact, which uh, unfortunately uh, quelled them with a brutal force, killing 13 uh, young activists or young demonstrators and injuring hundreds others. So, and I remember the New York Times wrote at the time uh, that uh, given this uprising of the Palestinians and Israel, the Israeli Arabs, this is the term that was used and still used by many academics and the Israeli state, Israeli Arabs, will be the time bomb for Israel in the next 20 years or 30, 30 years. So I, I, I would like, in fact, to go back to give a historical background, a very brief background about the Palestinians inside the ground, who, who they are, I mean. Uh, you know, from the very beginning, the Zionist movement wanted uh, Palestine without, without Palestinians, without the indigenous population of the country. And there was 
the major obstacle before this goal is the demography that Palestine was populated by people. And uh, they had to, to, to overcome this, this, this obstacle, demographic obstacle. And they did that by ethnic cleansing. So, uh, and today, you know, the archives, you know, and um, all academics who had access to the Israeli archives know that that was a plan, that uh, this expulsion of the Palestinians from Palestine was not as a, a byproduct of the war. It was a plan. So only 160,000 Palestinians survived the ethnic cleansing. And I myself is the uh, son of a surviving family which survived. And my, my, my village, about 10% of, the, of, the, of my relatives are outside, are in Inner Hilwa and, and in Syria and Yarmouk. So, I mean, every uh, family inside the Green Line have relatives there. So because some people think about the refugee problem as something, a political general issue, but no, the, the refugees who were forced to flee their country in 1948, or were forced to expel, in fact, they are not only part of the Palestinian people, but also they are our families, they are our relatives. And I'm, my, my, my three cousins were killed in 1982 during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. So in, 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 in 1948, so those who remained inside the Green Line, of course, that was not a, a fact that was uh, desired by the Israeli state, by the Israeli, the new Israeli state. And they started thinking how to cope with such number. And there were uh, debate, there was a debate among the Israeli leadership what to do, but what to do with this part of the Palestinian people who managed to, to stay there. And even granting citizenship was also subject to debate because they didn't want to give them citizenship. And uh, at the end, when, when, when it was a condition set by the United Nations, I mean to that Israel grant citizenship to those Palestinians to be accepted as a member in the nation, in the United Nations. So, and, 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 and that in fact uh, was uh, a way of even dominating. I mean, granting citizenship to Palestinians was a way of dominating Palestinians because they uh, soon they passed two basic laws the law of return and the citizenship law in 1950 and 1952 in order to uh, confine the right, the full citizenship to Jews only and to prevent the refugees from coming back anyway. So in, from the very beginning, the Israeli state uh, started to uh, embrace a policy of a, or strategy of control, which uh, was based on, on three pillars, direct uh, uh, oppression, uh, second, land confiscation to control their land and to weaken the relationship between Palestinians and their lands and to change and to transform the farmers into cheap laborers in Israeli uh, enterprises. And uh, third is education, through education. Uh, they, uh, they employed a policy of denationalization, submerging the Palestinian identity because they thought that uh, in order to tighten their control over those who remained uh, they have, the Israeli state has had to uh, wipe up, wipe uh, their, their identity, their narrative, their history, and to divide them into three religious communities, 
Muslims, Christians, Druze. The Druze community, which makes up 10% of Palestinians in Israel, were uh, subjected to, to uh, compulsory uh, draft. I mean, that they imposed on them serving the army, and they still do that. Although in, in recent years, there have been dissent within the Druze community against the, 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 this, this law. So, uh, and, uh, and I think that the most, uh, one of the most dangerous steps that, uh, or the pillars of this strategy is the really the, that, that, that attempt to wipe us our narrative. That is to re-architect re or to, to, to redesign the new generation to become loyal to the state of Israel without becoming equal citizens, because this doesn't mean that they wanted to Israelize us, to Israelize us that they uh, wanted to be an, uh, uh, equal citizens, but just to control us. And, uh, but you know, over time, a new political movement evolved. I'm talking in, in, in a, a fast way so that uh, to, to move how Palestinians uh, reacted to this policy of oppression. And I must say that in, from 1948 until 1966, there, were, uh, there was activism, there was activism, but in fact, most Palestinians were passive. I mean that they were, because at the beginning, Palestinians just wanted to survive. They were not preoccupied with equality or other things. They just wanted to stay in their homeland because they had witnessed their, witnessed their relatives, how they were expelled and they did not come back. So they wanted just to be passive, or to to demonstrate that they are loyal to the state of Israel. And many of them voted to Zionist parties because the Zionist establishment, in fact, used several subtle ways to, uh, to, to, to subordinate Jewish Palestinians to the Zionist parties. But in fact, and, and some would say that how come that Palestinians soon after the, the establishment of a foreign state would vote for Zionist parties. In fact, they did not, this was not out of ideology. It was out of fear. They just wanted to stay, they wanted to survive. But later on, of course, Palestinians became, after the military rule was lifted in 1966 and the reoccupation of the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, Palestinians came together and under uh, the Israeli regime. And they started, I mean, so also that followed uh, was followed by the rise of the Palestinian nationalism, which was reflected on the uh, consciousness of the Palestinians in Israel. So if I, this, if I may just yeah. interrupt you for a second. So the, just to clarify, so first of all, after 1948, the Palestinians who remained, you know, they suffered an enormous trauma. They really suffered a, a, a Holocaust. Their entire country was destroyed, and their their entire as a nation, they were just almost completely destroyed. So this was an enormous trauma. So obviously what you're saying makes perfect sense. And then I think many people don't realize from 1948 until 1966, the Palestinians, even though they became so-called citizens of the state of Israel, they were under military occupation and there were severe limitations on movement, severe limitations on work, severe limitations on every aspect of their life. Um, and they were governed by some very cruel military governors and even with, uh, in the cases like we know, the case of the massacre of Kfir Qasim, 
where the military got, it was obvious that the military was was uh, culpable and, and and guilty of the massacre there were no con real consequences to the people who were involved in this so this was a this was a very very strict and maybe you could touch on that a little bit more the what life was like under those conditions it's not like people were living free as the Israelis like to pretend that you know the Arabs of Israel are free to live and they have equal rights and so on this was a very very severe uh, and strict yeah. uh, regime during those years. Um, right. so, yeah, so I thought maybe maybe we should clarify that. And also, when you say the Green Line, I think some people might not know the Green Line is the pre-1967 borders of the state of Israel. Yeah. But please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, during this period from 1948 until 1966, in fact, uh, I would say that also as Palestinians were languishing under a tight system of oppression. Yeah. The Western countries, the governments, the elites were praising Israel as the only democracy democracy in the Middle East. Yeah. And uh, it was recognized, you know, a state which is apartheid state was recognized by the United Nations. And nobody paid attention to the plight and to the suffering of those Palestinians because at this time, most of the lands of the Palestinians were confiscated. 75% of the lands of Palestinians were taken over by the Israeli state. And Menachem Begin himself, when during the debate over about lifting the military rule, he, he said, he interpreted or ex explained that that was not for security reasons. It's for the purpose was to take over the land because you know, when the movement of the farmers were respected, many of them could not reach their lands to work their lands, and it was confiscated. Of course, there were numerous laws designed mainly to take over lands, to take over lands. So, and so far today, we are left with only 3% of, of lands. So, I mean, this is why Arab townships and villages are like a ghetto. Um, this is why uh, house, demo uh, house demolitions is going on because Palestinians are not given the right to expand the jurisdiction of their villages. No land left. So when people uh, are forced or compelled to, 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 to build, they are not given license. They build without the license. So yeah. their houses are demolished. Anyway, so this is, I mean, during this period, I think that the, uh, the apartheid system was entrenched because some academics even would, would contest this claim or this this this, uh, this uh, assumption. But in fact, when you when you when 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 the state of Israel decided to separate most of the citizens of the state, I mean the refugees, when they uh, dispersed, then they expelled them and prevented them from uh, going back to, to to Palestine. That means apartheid. That is the apartheid. And when the Sinan community in Israel after 1948 was separated from the Jewish community, and even the townships themselves were separated from each other, that was a, a system of apartheid. So because citizenship is not a guarantee of equality, because this is uh, 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 this is a formal citizenship, but it is devoid of, of the benefits that uh, that that uh, a liberal uh, citizenship entails. So I mean, so uh, the making of the uh, because Lana Tatur and uh, Nadim Rohani and Ari Sabbar, those uh, Palestinian academics from inside the grind, they did a great job, academic job, when they uh, explore, ex examine, de-examine 
the citizenship, the Israeli citizenship, or the uh, citizenship regime of Israel, how this regime was formed from 1948 to 1952. Uh, and, and so they call it a colonial citizenship. Is this in English? Is this something that- It's in English, yeah, it's in English, yeah. We can put it in a link if people want to take a look, if there's a link, uh, if it's online, yeah, we can offer Yeah, we, could, we can send, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so that is, this is a new thing, in fact. And this is just that we should go beyond citizenship because you know that the stages that the Palestinians in Israel have gone through, first, they did not take their citizenship seriously because they just wanted to be, they were preoccupied with survival, with staying in their homeland. And the second stage starting in 19, 70s, they are started taking their citizenship seriously because you know a new uh, middle class emerged as a result of economic boom in Israel and because some Palestinians, uh, there is some openness after the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and Israel became more confident of itself and so it was, it gave some liberal openness and Palestinians make benefit of that. So there was a, 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 a new elite and they're more education. Palestinians went to the universities, Palestinians knew each other, you know, after 18 years of isolation from each other, suddenly they went to the universities, Palestinians from different villages and towns met and rediscovered that they are one people. And this, this is why the strongest movement uh, was in the universities, Abna al-Balad. Abna al-Balad, uh, in fact, it started in Al-Fahim. This is a nationalist movement which stressed the Palestinian identity uh, as in contrast with the Israeli uh, uh, direction, Israeli orientation, Israeli Communist Party orientation, which is stressed on the Israeli identity on the class struggle more than on the national struggle. So the Palestinian uh, national movement or the Abna al-Balad, which I belong to, I wasn't the founder of Abna al-Balad because I still was a child, but I, I, I joined Abna al-Balad in 1980, but we managed to rebuild the movement in in, in the 1980s, mid-80s, so that it became a central centralized movement. So it because started- the leaders, Excuse me, but the leaders originally of Ibn al-Balad were all subjected to arrests and harassment by the military government, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So Ibn al-Balad, in fact, uh, emerged as a movement to stress with the goal to stress the Palestinian entity of the Palestinians because Israel from the very beginning wanted to severe our cultural roots to denationalize us, to submerge the Palestinian identity through the education curricula. And the teachers, by the way, who were willing to resist this policy were fired. And I won the teacher that who was fired twice from schools in 1980, 1979, and immediately after I graduated from the university, I was fired twice because just I insisted on passing on the narrative of the Palestinian narrative to Palestinians because in, in, in textbooks, no mention of Palestinian history of the, what happened in 1948. So we had to do that because we did that outside the schools, but also inside the schools, some teachers tried to do that, but most of teachers were intimidated, were silent, silenced, and only a few teachers who were willing to resist and they lost their jobs. By So, I mean, this is the way of uh, of, of, decolonize, of colonization, colonizing the mind, colonizing the history, colonizing the narrative. So we had to resist that. So, I mean, so, uh, and, 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 and as I said, the second stage is uh, to start in taking the, the, the uh, citizenship seriously. And there was two trends as some academics uh, defined. 
Israelizations and Palestinization. That is, Palestinians started to, uh, to, to, to perceive their Israeli citizenship as a way of improving their status, of improving their economic and social uh, status. And at the same time, in parallel, they were uh, following the uh, evolution of the Palestinian nationalism outside, which was led by the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organizations, which was established in the 60s to lead the struggle, uh, 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 united the, Pal the Palestinian people and did the struggle for the liberation of Palestine. So Abna al-Balad was, was, was impacted by this, in fact, was impacted by, because also it considered itself part of the Palestinian national movement. The Communist Party said that the, the PLO does not represent the Palestinians in Israel. It is we who represent the Palestinians in Israel. Even there, they didn't use the word Palestinians, by the way, the Communist Party. They used the word uh, Israeli Arabs or the Arab masses in Israel. So Nal Balad was the first movement to use the word Palestinians. And we use it not as a chauvinistic uh, consideration, but simply to, as a defense to defend our identity, to defend our collective uh, history. To, uh, to Because identity is the glue that binds people together. We and wanted to. Is, was, yeah. Were Abnai Balad represented in the PLO? No, no, it was not represented. It was uh, even, you know, we were imprisoned because we just wrote PLO on the walls, for example. Many of us were, were sentenced to months in prison simply because there is the Palestinian flag or, or even wrote a, uh, wrote a graffiti on the walls, PLO. So, I mean, that was, you know, illegal to do that. But, but we, you saw the PLO, but you did see the PLO as representing yeah. you. Exactly. We looked at, we viewed the PLO as the representative of the Palestinians everywhere. We are part of the Palestinian, we are part of the conflict, and we should be part of the solution. So that was not posed by the Israeli Communist Party, which in fact had, has played a, a crucial role in the history of the struggle of Palestinians inside the Green Line. But in fact, they have, we know, we were in clash with it, the Communist Party because we thought that they were distorting our Palestinian identity. Recently, the Communist Party or the Jabha, uh, uh, has in fact uh, evolved, I, be, I can see. They had become more, uh, as a result of the struggle of Nael Balad, as a result of the struggle of other political movement, including Balad, which we formed in after Oslo, uh, Balad Party. I mean, because also the Communist Party, the dynamics of the political developments or evolution within the Palestinians inside the Green Line also impacted people in, in the Communist Party. The Palestinians. I may interject just a second, just so the people will know. I, th I don't think people realize the, the the Communist Party was for many Palestinians their political home in 1940. And the, the 1948 Palestinians, for many of them, the Communist Party had become their political home. They were presented in the Knesset, and very and some major figures in the Palestinian community were members of the Communist Party, served in the Knesset, I believe Emil Habibi, if I'm not mistaken, was, was a communist, and there were other big, big names that, but they somehow did see themselves, they did see the Communist Party as their political home. Can you, can you touch on that? Can you explain uh, how, how that dynamic? Because you're right, in a way, the, you know, the Soviet Union recognized, this, recognized Israel and Refer to them as the Arab community in Israel and not as Palestinians. So there's yeah. a there's a something that, that's hard to understand. Yeah, yeah. The Communist Party, uh, uh, the roots of the Communist Party roots goes to the 1920s when 
Jewish uh, settlers uh, came to Palestine, socialists uh, from the Eastern uh, Bloc came to Palestine to, to have a Jewish home in, 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 in Palestine, and they were socialists. And then Palestinians joined this party as a, as a progressive party, which advocated one state in all of Palestine. But you know, over time, uh, there was a problem with this communist party because and even the commentator, the international, uh, uh, the, the international organization of the communist parties in the world uh, recommended that the party uh, be Arabized because the leaders were Jews and most farmers were suspicious. We didn't believe that these people were coming to free them themselves. But anyway, I mean, uh, in 1943, the communists uh, split between Jews and Palestinians, and the Palestinians formed the so-called the National League. The National League were nationalists and communists, and the Jews, the, Zion, the Jewish communists, then joined the Zionist movement. Started. I'm not saying that all of them, but most of them, I mean, joined the Communist Party and fought against the Palestinian people. But after 48, and when the communists, when the Soviet Union uh, backed the partitioning plan and even helped establish the state of Israel. And recognized, so, Israel, and and recognized the state of Israel. So, I mean, uh, that was, uh, uh, so the, the communists, even the Arab communists, most of them also, uh, because they were uh, subordinated the, communist, the, 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 the Soviet, to the Soviet Communist Party, they were not independent. Right. And, uh, but after 48, there was no, it seems that there was no, other option than to join the Israeli Communists because the Israeli Communist Party became a legitimate party. Israel banned or prevented any independent Arab party to, uh, to, to evolve or to emerge. Then the Palestinians had to, the Palestinian Communists had to join uh, the Communists and become the Israeli party, the Israeli Communist Party. Uh, and even also this party witnessed a split, as you know, in the 60s on over the issue of nationalism. So, so some, many Palestinians, in fact, voted for the Communist Party because it was the only opposition parties. This is the only outlet that they can express their sentiments. It's not, it's not, not because they were communists, but the, the only legitimate part, the only legal party that was allowed by the state of Israel is the Communist Party. This is why Palestinians resorted to this party to express their sentiments, their opposition to the policies to the security policies, to the discrimination, to the military rule. And this is why many intellectuals, I'm not saying many intellectuals because in fact, the Nakba, uh, uh, after the Nakba, most of the Palestinian elites were dispersed. I mean, were displaced because, you know, Palestinians were remained almost, almost without leadership. The Arab communists who were there were still young. They didn't have even uh, mature experience. This is why Tufiq Tuba, for example, would, would say things, strange things to the eyes, to the ears of the Palestinians today, when he thought that uh, Palestinians should be recruited in the army. So, so, so this is, at the time, the, 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 the trauma was huge at the time, and Palestinian communists thought that this is the only way, but, but, but that, in fact, uh, turned into ideology, that they started to theorize to justify the establishment of the set of leaders as the embodiment of the right of self-determination to, to the Jews. And uh, while uh, Israel was a, 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 and still a colonial project, it's not the embodiment of the 
of the of the Jewish of the self determination of the Jews. It's, you can't accept if you are a communist, believe in equality and brotherhood. You can't accept a state which is established on the ruins of other people, and which it declares itself as a Jewish state, which is against all values, all universal values, communism and liberal democracy even. So, and they uh, started to uh, give ideological justification for this. That is the, the issue. If they accepted Israel as a de facto, which is legitimate, but it's, it's okay. But in fact, the problem is that it started to write about the state of Israel and those who criticize it were subjected to harsh criticism and assault, like Al-Ard movement. The Al-Ard movement was the, the first independent Arab movement to emerge after 48. And it, there was, uh, it was, came under fire from the Israeli state and from the communists. And at the end, after a few years, the, the art movement was banned and its leaders were displaced in the country. So, but only in the, in the, in the 70s, Abna al-Balad emerged when there was, when Israel uh, was allowed itself to, to, to let uh, relative openness so that Palestinians and also with growing with the, with the growth of education among Palestinians and uh, going to the universities. So we built uh, a movement. Then uh, other forces, other political movement, nationalist movement or national sentiments emerged and this broke the monopoly of the Israeli Communist Party over the uh, politics of the Palestinians in Israel. So we, uh, starting in 1980s, we, uh, the Palestinian society in Israel uh, started to have a multi-party uh, politics uh, and then uh, came the third stage when, 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 uh, when Balad, uh, our party, uh, was born in 1995 after Oslo. And this is uh, a different period. This is very important period that we uh, talk about if you can we talk about that or we, if we are forgot anything before we can move there no, i think i think this is i think this is uh this is important to talk about uh, balad and its uh, relationship with the state because as we know balad does run for the knesset in fact it has uh, members of knesset and has for a very long time some very outspoken ones uh you are a founding member if i'm not mistaken of balad um, but you do not run, you do not want to run for the Knesset. So maybe you can talk about this relationship of Balad to the state, to the Knesset, and, and, and your own personal thoughts about, because uh, you, you and I discussed this before, about your own personal thoughts about being part of the, of the Knesset, of, of the Zionist establishment. Yeah. Yeah, when we uh, were active in Abna al-Balad, which in fact Abna al-Balad could not uh, become a large grassroots movement. Could not. It, uh, could not. It uh, it uh, it was. It, it uh, in fact, it was mainly active in the universities, and it did very well in the universities. We had only fifteen branches in towns and villages, not more. We could not become because we were viewed as extreme movement by the Israeli state and by Palestinians. And the Communist Party, in fact, attacked us, attacked us severely. I mean, assaulted, I mean, criticized, and they, they uh, labeled us as chauvinistic and uh, childish movement. 
because we openly said that we want you know, one democratic state in all of Palestine. We believe that the PLO should represent all Palestinians everywhere and that we are part of the conflict. And we also related to Israel as a colonial project, not only in the past, because the Communist Party, by the way, in its literature writes that it, it, it involves that Israel and the Zionist movement is a colonial movement. But after 48 and when Israel was established, uh, they think that Israel stopped to be a colonial state. So this is our disagreement with the Communist Party and with others. We believe that the colonial, the settler colonial project is still going on. It's not finished. I mean, Israel continue to be. So this is our ideology, our Zabna al-Balad. And what happened is that in the 80s and late in the 80s, after the failure of the Intifada, first Intifada to achieve its goals, not because the Palestinians, the Palestinian masses failed, but because the leadership failed them, in fact, and signed Oslo. So, and we were, uh, as, as a national movement, with such a progressive uh, platform or vision, which is, in fact, it was the vision of the PLO. It is the original vision of the Palestinian because this is why we see we, we continue to stick to the vision of the PLO. The PLO started with the goal of liberating Palestine and then moved to a secular democratic state where all Palestinians and Jews can live together in equalist and secularist. And so we adopted that, we embraced that and we kept sticking to this vision. So what happened is that after the weakening of the Palestinian liberation organization, or the Palestinian movement, and the the, the and, 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 and given the uh, crumbling of the Soviet bloc, which was considered a friend of the Palestinian struggle, and the crumbling of the Arab regimes following the Israel, the American invasion of Iraq, so the 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 the, the landscape, the political landscape, was catastrophic in the nineties. So, and suddenly the PLO started negotiations about how to solve the Palestinian problem. And suddenly we, we, we were shocked, we were surprised by declaring the Oslo Accord. That was a shock for us as a national movement. I believe that it was a shock for many Palestinians. And, that's because the PLO surrendered, that must have been terrible. Yeah, because the PLO surrendered and the Oslo, uh, ignored the Palestinians totally. I mean, the Oslo Accord does not mention at all. And that, what does that mean? Because when the Oslo recognized the state of Israel as a normal state, and when the PLO recognized Israel as, uh, as, as, uh, as a state without even uh, Israel recognizing the Palestinian people, the right uh, to a state, they recognized, Israel recognized the PLO, but did not recognize the Palestinian people and their right to self-determination. Right. And uh, so at this, at this moment, we started thinking, in fact, we started thinking what to do, what we have to do, because many Palestinians inside the Green Line thought that the peace is, uh, is coming. And, uh, you know, Oslo held promises for Palestinians and then started relating to Israel as a normal state, and we should vote to Zionist movement, to Zionist, uh, to Zionist parties, and we can improve our situation. So we, as uh, progressives, we, this, we, 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 we thought that was a dangerous trend. If we let it, we will be finished as a people, not only as a national movement. So, as, so since the 
Palestinian National Movement, the leadership of the Palestinian National Movement, adopted this the Oslo Accords. And that means that meant stopping comparing Zionism as a racist ideology and Israel as a colonial, as a settler colonial project. So we thought we should continue, we should not surrender, but we have to cope with the situation in a different way. So, okay, in the past, Abna al-Balad used the term liberating Palestine from the river to, to the sea and, uh, and have a secular democratic state and so on and so. So, but now after Palestinians, all Palestinians almost, uh, and the national leadership of the Palestinian people agreed or uh, legitimized the state of Israel. So, and we thought, still thought that that was a big mistake, it is even a catastrophe. And we wrote strongly against that. We wrote articles, we post Oslo, and we thought that we, we said that we will continue to fight Zionism. But in which way? Because if you continue to raise the same slogan, people will not take you seriously because most Palestinians thought, became passive, thought that it's okay, the leadership will negotiate, will continue to negotiate and achieve the rights of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And Palestinian Israel will automatically get equality because this is the argument of the Communist Party, the old argument that whenever the Israel recognizes the PLO, the uh, conditions of the Palestinians inside the Green Line will improve automatically. But this did not happen. So why? Because this also reflected ignorance of the nature of the state of Israel. This is what this is Azmi Bshara, me, Abbas al-Ghattas, Muhammad Ma'ari, all these people were active in the nationalist uh, movements. Azmi Bshara was in the Communist Party, but he split in the 1980s on a, uh, over these issues that the Communist Party was not stressing the national identity of Palestinians inside the Green Line and was also giving legitimacy to the ideology of the Zionist uh, movement. So, and as, in, and as we thought that we have to be wise, we have to create a, a sophisticated political formula. So then came after two years of, of uh, debate, uh, the formula of that we demand a state of all its citizens. We demand that Israel be reformed or reinvented into a state of its citizens. We demand, and the, and the condition is that the abolition of the Jewish character of the state of Israel. We support the withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza Strip and the right of the refugees. The, these are three slogans. We came with the three slogans. And I believe that the BDS borrowed these slogans from the, the, from the Ballot Party. It was the first because, and these, and these are three slogans, in fact, if you put them together, theoretically, this means that one state, because if you abolish the Jewish character of the state of Israel, if Israel withdraws from West Bank and Gaza Strip, if the, the refugees are uh, returned, so then you will have one state, but we didn't say that because nobody would, would take that seriously. So this is the three slogan that we worked under. And then we went to the Knesset before Abna al-Balad, I myself was used to campaign against the Knesset. But when we built the party, we said that we have to go to the Knesset, but I myself personally, I refused to run for the Knesset. Because- Why did you, you feel that Balad had to run for the Knesset? Yeah, we, we felt that at the time because Palestinians have started going to, to, the, to the Zionist parties. So uh, even not the, the Communist Party, by the way, because the Communist Party was retreating. Yes. Yeah, and the, the power of the Communist Party was declining mm -hmm. and people started to go 
to the Zionist parties. So what we thought, we thought that if we pose a, a, a realistic formula that combines between the national identity and equal citizenship, that would, 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 would appeal to the people. And this is what happened, in fact. And that took us, I mean, two years of debate. How can we convince people? And we started with this political formula that, okay, we go to the Knesset, and we believe that the Knesset at the time could become a platform, a forum to, to, to say your opinions, to address your people, not only to address the Israeli society, but to address the people. And because the speaker in the Knesset or the member of the Knesset becomes really important, even the secretary general of any party, you know, uh, given the media and so on and so on. So he's always under in, in, in the lights. So he can use this media to tell the world that, okay, we are citizens, but we are discriminated. We are not related as equal citizens. We are uh, even internal colonization is exercised against us, land, land theft, uh, house demolition and others. So, I mean, I, I believe that that succeeded because soon we became a big party, a major party. And we built chapters, tens of chapters in different, and we, we, we became as, 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 as strong as the Communist Party. We got three seats. So, I mean, so this is one, but what happened is that, that and, and when we post this formula, this challenge the state of Israel and to the Zionist liberals, at the beginning, they did not pay attention to this issue, to this challenge, but soon, when we started campaigning strongly about that, then suddenly a huge reaction, extreme reaction, not only from the state, but even from liberal Zionist intellectuals. They started attacking Balad, attacking Azmi Shara, that he is a chauvinist, he is not democratic, but we had to tell them that we are the only democratic force in Israel because we call for a one democratic state for a democratic state. And we didn't say one democratic state in all of this time, but we said that we want Israel to be a real democratic state. We want to be citizens. Let us come here and sit and talk about that. We want to be citizens, but can we, we really grant us equal citizenship? Can you abolish all the legal structure, the racist and colonialist legal structure that you have built? So that is the challenge. Through this, through this campaign, I mean, you can convince Palestinians who were, uh, who had the illusion that if they threw uh, or abandoned their national identity, they would get equality. We had to convince Palestinians, even those who intellectuals, some academics and students, no, you will not get your equal rights, even if you uh, get rid of your national identity because we are disconnected not because we are workers or because farmers because we are we belong to a people with indigenous population and so that that helped uh, and this political uh, and you know Ama Ayalon who became a liberal Ama Ayalon who said you know what he said in 2001 about Azim Shara he crossed the red line he should be brought to trial because what he is posing is a threat to the state of Israel. Because exactly what he said, he said that Azmi Shara has taken this discourse or this approach from the margin of society to the center stage. Yeah. And just to clarify, Azmi Shara is now in exile. He had to leave the country because he was persecuted. And Ami Ayalon was a general in the Israeli army and then the head of the Shabak, the Israeli secret police. Uh, 
Um, so that's, uh, and he is, of course, uh, then became a liberal and, you know, talked about all kinds of peace initiatives and so on, which of course shows you the nature of the, of the ridiculous nature of the state that the person who is actually talking about real equal rights and democracy has to be in exile, while somebody who has a record with blood on his hands is considered a liberal. So let me ask you, let me press you uh, on this issue a little bit. Um, but you decided you, you, you will not run for the Knesset. You will not be part of that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, in fact, first of all, uh, before we thought that uh, being in the Knesset is giving legitimacy to the uh, allegation or to the claim that Israel is a democratic state. You know, when you are it's in a complex reality. It's giving legitimacy to the state because once you're part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you are living in a state. You are, because very few few people, and recently, uh, uh, knew about the complexity of our situation. There is no uh, minority in the world that is living this situation. So we had to be creative. And we have to uh, put things, in, I mean, to, to try things. And if they fail, we, we change our, 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 our road. So, and that was, was my, this is my belief that, that uh, we shouldn't be static, we shouldn't be stagnant, we should be always creative, we should be also dynamic. So when we moved from Abna al-Balad to Balad, that was really a necessary step. But now, for example, I believe, of course, I think that Balad should go back to the uh, roots of the conflict, of course, I'm not saying that Balad was not aware of the roots of the conflict because, but no, I'm saying that we should go back to the idea, to the original vision of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. We should again reframe the struggle, redefine the state of Israel as a settler colonial state, because the compromise that we post to the Jews in Israel to become equal citizens was rejected. Not also was rejected, but in fact, we are suffering continuous attacks, incitement campaigns, uh, plans, laws to restrict our movement, to uh, deepen, our, deepen our plight. So, and not only that, but some people call for a transfer. So when you come up with a liberal democratic formula and vision for Palestinians and Jews, so you are getting, you are rewarded by this by this attack. So now, since this, of course, I'm Oslo, because also I will now uh, connect with the Palestinians in, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and in the exile. So the Oslo, in fact, fragmented the Palestinians. This is what the strategy of Israel of uh, from the very beginning. So if Oslo, because why? Because the Palestinian leadership thought that if they uh, dispense with the Palestinians in Israel and, uh, and uh, postpone the issue of the refugees, they will get a state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So they accepted this fragmented the Palestinians. They accepted abandoning the source of the strength of the Palestinian cause, which is the unity of the Palestinians, the justness of the, of the cause. And they did not get anything. They didn't get a state. We didn't get equality, and no refugee has returned. So, then, 
So what, the price that we paid is huge and we did not get for anything. Now we have to go to the source of the strength, of the main source of our strength is the justness of the Palestinian cause and the unity of the Palestinians. So what should happen before? This should be preceded by going back to the roots of the conflict, by redefining Israel, reframing the struggle as not a struggle between two states, a virtual state, which is the Palestinian state, and uh, the state of Israel, which is, I mean, Israel today, we have two Jewish states today, one inside the Green Line and one in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. That's the state of the surplus. So we don't have anything. So now we have to go to the roots. We have to tell the world that this state of Israel is from the very beginning is existed colonial state and is its purpose is, and also the, the nation state law that was passed recently, it in fact constitutionalized legalized the apartheid, the settler colonial region. Today, Israel is an apartheid settler colonial state. This is Israel, and you know, academics like you and others, they have uh, written about that. They are going back to the settler colonial perspectives, to the studies, and that is a new thing. That, that, that It's good that this these studies have re-emerged and that intellectuals and uh, critical academics are resorting to that, and we are really relying on that to convince the Palestinian leadership to go back to the uh, original vision of the Palestinian national liberation. The cause, the Palestinian cause is a national liberation cause. It's not an issue of, of uh, it's not a, 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 a conflict over a territory uh, or over territory, territorial uh, or a territory. It is a, 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 a conflict waged or a struggle waged by an indigenous population against a settler colonial state. So this is what we have to show. So I myself today, this is why I, I refuse. In fact, from a personal, uh, I'm not saying because I agreed that we go to the Knesset, but I asked my, the, the, my comrades that I would not, not run because personally, this is a personal issue. I can't be there. I, my sentiments, I mean, my personal sentiments, I can't be there, but I appreciate those who go there and really challenge the Jewish character of the state. But I'm not critical of those members of Knesset today who really have, have been adopted, some of them adopted or, or, or uh, as I can say, uh, uh, how to say, tamed or something like that, that to, 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 to normalize the relation with the Knesset. And from the very beginning, we, we thought that if we go to the Knesset, we should never think that this is our home. This is a hostile home. This is a style place, but we go there in order to defend our vision, our national vision and our democratic vision. And I've, I've, I've visited the Knesset several times to go meet with members of Balad and uh, members of other, other members of the, of the joint list. And um, it's more than hostile. It's like going into a cesspool. It's, uh, it's really quite, uh, I have a lot of admiration for the people who are willing to work there, the Palestinians who are willing to work there because it is such a, it is a, it is like jumping into a, a race cesspool. It's really quite a disgusting um, place to be in. You know, I wanted to touch on a couple of things before we finish, and I really have to say, I really appreciate your time. I know it's late in Palestine right now. Uh, a couple of things. You, you talked about the home demolition issue. You know, people, again, they usually talk about home demolitions in, in what, ha you know, people talk about Palestine as though the West Bank and East Jerusalem is Palestine. But, uh, you know, a report came out, I'm sure you know recently, that over the last three years, 
in the Nakab alone, in the Nakab alone, yeah. Israel had to demolish 2,000 homes each year. In the Nakab alone, which is the southern, only the southern part, of course, it's the entire southern part, the southern half um, of the country. And, um, and, and, and so, and, um, and in terms of literature, I thought I'd throw in, um, I just finished reading a book by uh, Monsur Nasasra about the Nakab Bedouins. Yeah. And he talks a great deal, of, mostly about the Nakab Bedouins, but also about this entire period in which Palestinians throughout 1948, those who remained, uh, lived this entire, um, you know, the, the, military, the military regime that they had to live through and, and the restrictions and so forth. And of course, Ilan Pape's book, The Forgotten Palestinians, which, which I think is one of his better books. Um, and there's also a movie that Mohammed Bakri made about Emil Habibi, which is called uh, Since You've Left. And he, he, it's, it talks about the experience of the Palestinians in 1948 during, um, uh, during particularly the Second Intifada, which is, which, is, which is a very, very powerful movie. And again, people are not familiar with this reality. So I think it's, it's, it's very valuable to talk about this. Um, now, now, and moving forward, you talked a great deal about the, about the idea of, of, of a single democracy. And I agree with you, the three principles of ending the military occupation and equal rights and complete equal rights, in other words, unjudaizing the citizenship issue um, and allowing the refugees to return. These are really the three, the, these are three remedial issues that will remedy the, rea the reality of Palestinians and will allow to create a healthy democracy in Palestine. In other words, without them, it's impossible. And they will remedy the reality into which Palestinians were placed by the creation of Israel. But uh, can you talk a little bit more about, about this notion of a real democracy uh, with equal rights and the right to return? And how do we get there and realizing that when we look at the makeup of the Israeli, not only the Israeli Knesset, not only the parliament, but the actual government, the actual cabinet, we see people sitting there that, you know, in the late, in the 80s even, as, you know, they were considered uh, fringe radical lunatics calling for the destruction of Al-Aqsa. Today they are in the cabinet. You know, people uh, like uh, Rafi Peretz and uh, Smotrich, who was in the cabinet recently, and Naftali Bennett, and so on. These are these are these are people who are just like Kahana. This is their, you know. And of course, Mayor Kahana was considered a, a radical in those days. Today, he would not be considered a radical. So, given this this really uh, intense racist reality that exists in the political discourse which really always exists, but I think now it's being given a platform. In other words, now it's, they're not ashamed to say, talk about transfer. They're not ashamed to talk about destroy, destroying Al-Aqsa. Even the American ambassador gave a, a, a public appearance and in the background, there was uh, no Al-Aqsa. You know, there was Jerusalem and instead of Al-Aqsa, there was a Jewish temple. So it's become, it's come to a point where that kind of discourse is completely legitimized. So how do you see moving forward in a realistic fashion uh, to, from, this, from this madness to a normal, healthy uh, democracy where, 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 where Palestine can function as, as a free democratic uh, country? Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, uh, right, that we are uh, at uh, a very dangerous uh, political landscape. Uh, as you described, 
And the only uh, response to this is that to uh, develop a democratic vision with a moral uh, discourse uh, that can uh, uh, capture the imagination of the world. And even the settlers, I mean, over time. So first of all, you know, the Palestinians uh, are uh, now uh, facing uh, uh, the most difficult uh, chapter in their history, I believe, because given not only the, the rights of the far right in Israel uh, and the legalization of the apartheid regime in all of Palestine, but also because the Arab regimes are normalizing, uh, uh, normalizing relations with Israel, not only normalizing, in fact, that they are like the two Gulf states are aligned with the state of Israel with this regime. So this is why <coughs> recently Palestinian factions <coughs> are beginning to, uh, to discuss uh, to, to, to sit at the table and try to remedy the long-standing rift uh, that has uh, really uh, fragmented the Palestinian national movement and decrypted even the thinking of how to move from here to, to there. So uh, uh, we don't know what is going to come out of this uh, of these efforts of reconciliation. We bless them. We, of course, we think that it's good step. This should be done, but- no, reconciliation between, the, between Hamas and Fatah. Yeah, and other, I mean, and all the Palestinians, all the Palestinian yes. factions, among all Palestinian factions. So, because this was uh, used as a, a justification for by others, why not responding to the demands or the rights of the Palestinian people. So, but despite that, and, and, and between, of course, in parallel with these efforts, we Palestinians who are critical of the leadership and who are strongly opposed to the settler colonial regime in Palestine, we think that we should accelerate our efforts to build a third stream, a third stream that can really pose a real vision for Palestinians and Jews in Palestine. And that is, as I said before, this is the one democratic state in all of Palestine. In 2018, we started as a group of, of, of intellectuals and activists in Haifa, Palestinians and, and Israelis, or Jews, to try to uh, build a new campaign based on the experience and the expertise of others who preceded us because in the last 20 years, especially after the outbreak of the Antifada and the reoccupation of the West Bank, uh, several groups calling for one democracy emerged, but none of them managed to take off and to become a real movement. And I myself, as a secretary general at the time in our party, I was following this and I was writing about one democratic state inside the party and educating the cadres about that. And so that we can one day uh, change the platform of the ballot into from a, 
a state in the West Bank and Gaza. So we never, by the way, used two states. We, we never used, this is deliberately, we never used that. We used abolishing the Jewish character of the state of Israel and withdrawal from West Bank and return of the refugees. But I thought that we, as a ballot party, we should uh, shift from this platform into clear uh, vision. I mean, one democratic state, to say that explicitly. So, but the party, because it has been weakened either for internal factors or for external factors, I mean, the incitement against the harassment by the Israeli state against our party and our cadres. So uh, now we want to, 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 so we started this initiative and so far, I think we have been more successful than any other group. And other groups even have uh, merged with other with our campaign from Gaza Strip, from the West Bank, and people from the side. So that is a, 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 an encouraging sign of where we are going. So uh, now we are re reorganizing even our uh, the campaign. Uh, we uh, are going to have a website. We are going. Uh, to have a youth movement. So things are going well, uh, slowly, but steadily. And uh, also this, as I said, this movement includes, involves Palestinians and Jews. And also we are going also to involve uh, internationals. I mean, uh, prominent figures uh, on the international level who support or advocate one state in all of Palestine. This is the only way because Israel can't continue to live by the sword. Israel can't continue to live as a ghetto. Israel is becoming the, 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 the least safer place for Jews. The only place that Jews are killed here, not in the world. So, and it's not the Palestinians who are responsible for the Holocaust of, of the Jews in Germany. It is the European. We were victims of the victims of the Holocaust. So, and we will continue to view the Israelis, the Israeli regime as a settler colonial, as an alien settler colonial regime. They will never uh, be able to, sub, so to subjugate the Palestinian people. Palestinians, what even all the Arab regimes, if they even surrender and ally with them, with the state of Israel, the Palestinians will continue to resist in all means possible. And even recently, Palestinian movement, and including my movement, my, my campaign, is that we advocate for civil struggle, for uh, mass demonstrations, for rebuilding institutions, steadfastness. You know, this is the strategy that should be now because we have to first to change the balance of forces because people would say, how can you get to the one democratic state? We are not naive to believe that this is a topic for negotiations with the Israelis because the Israelis will never accept that unless they are forced to do that. So this will take time, unfortunately. But this is the only way that can give hope, that can rally people around this vision. So we will have first to change the balance of forces by reuniting the Palestinian people, by attracting the Israelis and Jews, even though are still on the margin, together because they are to be with us very important as some whites uh, were involved in the struggle in the ANC in South Africa. 
and also the, the World Civil Society. The World Civil Society, which is now being uh, active in the BDS. Yes. So, I mean, we have, uh, there are uh, spots of light in Palestine. I mean, even in this darkness, we have spots of lights. There are initiatives, there are in the, uh, people who are fighting, who, who academics who, who write, who are who write to critique against the existing situation. So I think that all this will one day come together and be united under one uh, political vision, which is uh, equality, uh, brotherhood, or, or justice for all. And that would be a real democracy in Palestine. That takes, it will take, it's a long way, but that's the only way that can we get there. Yeah, and I think the name, the third stream is a very good name for a movement because it represents everything you just said is represented very well i think in that in that concept of a third stream so i've you know i i've kept you very long so i want to thank you again for your your words of wisdom and your encouragement and your hard work and your uh, time your valuable time i really appreciate this uh, every time we've met in the past it's been a real pleasure um and i learned a lot and I look forward uh, to working together on all this, uh, on all of this. And I think your vision—I I, I agree with it. Couldn't agree with it more. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by it. And I think other people will be inspired as well. You know, you said the thing about, you know, the a safe place for Jewish people. There's a famous rabbi in London called Rabbi Beck. Yeah. He's part of the Torah He's very well known, and I met him several times. And he said to me, you know, I've been living in London for 35 years. I don't know what a, Jew, what, a, what a British soldier looks like. I've never seen a soldier. I've never seen a gun. My kids don't know what a gun looks like. Every Jewish kid in, who lives in Israel knows what a soldier looks like, what a gun looks like. He said, we see a trash, a piece of, you know, a bag of trash. We're never worried over there. If you see a bag of trash somewhere, it's right away you have to call the police because somebody thinks, you know, this is, this is safety. How can you say that it's safe over there and not safe over here? So I think that's a, that's a, that's a point very well taken, very well made. Um, and so once again, thank you very much. We will uh, make this available on YouTube. We will put this out. And of course, I'll let you know when. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again and working together in, uh, for Free Palestine. Sure. sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a good time. For, thank you very much. Have a good time, <laughs> awesome. Have a good time too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Be safe. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that is going to do it for today's episode of the Miko Pellet podcast. I want to thank the audience for keeping up with it. It's really exciting to watch this uh, show grow in a lot of different ways. We do have some uh, exciting news coming your way, so keep an eye out for that regarding some chances to access exclusive content and uh, kind of be you know, start to formulate some kind of community within the context of uh, the Miko Pellet podcast. Uh, once again, uh, I'd like to ask you to rate and review the Miko Pellet podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Google, whatever podcast app you use, we're probably on it. And if we're not, you can go ahead and shoot me an email at booking at mikopella.com and I will make it my mission to get us up on your favorite podcast app. All right. Well, till next time. <laughs>